You're listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I love to run, period. You can always run faster. Forever, you're going to feel something. You're going to run into roadblocks, but that's also going to teach you how to handle things in life. I don't think we want to be like rocks where we're not affected by anything. It's not maybe a physical thing, but it's a mental thing. There's like two voices in me, alpha and beta. Really trying to do is just keep moving forward. Every single runner knows what that means. My life has a purpose, and maybe it's not what I thought it was going to be, but. There were times when I didn't think I would be able to come back. There's a lot of people that had different gifts, and they don't use it. I think if we all use our gifts, we could do something really special, not for ourselves, but for our family. If we're really good, we could do something for our community. Wherever we live, wherever we live. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's your host, Mario Fraioli, and we are back with our second and final AMA, that's Ask Mario Anything, episode of 2023, and on the other side of the mic for this one to ask me the questions that you, our loyal listeners, submitted is Chris Douglas. Chris, welcome back to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thanks for having me. I always love these episodes. It's uh, it's always great to, to see the questions that people have, and yeah, the whole thing. I just love it. It's yeah, we got, we got some great submissions for this one, too. There will be a link in the show notes where you can submit questions anytime you want. We are going to do some AMA episodes uh, on Instagram over the next few months, but also in 2023. But we do have a form where you could submit questions at any time, and we will queue them up when we sit down to record these podcasts. But before we get into it and talk about some of the questions that were submitted, you are coming off of your final swim run of the year. I don't know if the listeners like hearing about your swim run exploits, <laughs> but I love hearing about them. But you just got back from Austin. I know you and your partner Chipper, aka the Low Tide Boys, finished second in your most recent swim run. So give us the the quick recap. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, so if you, re- if you want the, the slow recap, you can check out the Low Tide Boys podcast, wherever wherever you're listening to this. But, um, but yeah, this is our fir- fourth year doing the same race, and typically swim run courses can vary year by year, but this one's been pretty static, so it's, it's a nice way to kind of do like apples to apples in terms mm-hmm. of performance and the way we've progressed in the sport and it's super fun it's a great way to end the year it's a fun park to swim in and run in and yeah we had a good time so it's all good yeah and what adjustments did you and chipper make coming off of the otillo swim run world championships which yeah. we talked a little bit about on the previous podcast yeah so interestingly um you know for us we because we're a team, we're two individual people, things were never exactly aligned. So I was dealing with some injury post, post Attila that we spoke about where I was effectively impaled, which was a real bummer. It took me, I'm still feel like I'm coming out of it. I would say like lowercase PTSD, uh, lowercase trauma kind of thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it was, it was a little bit harder for me to, enjoy the training for this one i was just kind of going through the motions so but but getting there definitely felt great and being around the swim community which is really the best part so so 
just did the work until we got into the environment and the environment just sort of like lifted lifted our moods and we had some things that we wanted to do going in so it was um it was fun to just have a plan to execute and something to do at a race that we're super familiar with and it's just super fun yeah felt like a great way to end the year yeah for sure Awesome. Well, before we get to these questions, let's shout out the sponsors that make this episode and just my work in general possible. Definitely. Starting off with Tracksmith. Tracksmith, longtime partner of The Morning Shakeout, my favorite brand in running. There's a reason that we've partnered with them for six years now, which is amazing. We are heading into what we call Brighton Base Layer season, <laughs> uh, chilly mornings. There's some precipitation coming here in the Bay Area that's usually rain. Other parts of the country, that is snow. The Brighton Base Layer is a versatile piece that will help get you through winter. They have a short sleeve version and a long sleeve version. I will wear both depending on the weather conditions, but it's a merino wool blend. You wear it close to the skin. You can wear it on its own. I mean, it's a great mm-hmm. shirt just by itself, but it's meant to be layered on top of... I usually like to go with a mid-layer on top, usually a half zip or a long sleeve, something along those lines. And that's enough in, in most conditions. If it's precipitating or if it's windy out, I'll often throw a jacket over it. And like you can stay pretty warm just wearing a base layer and a jacket. But that is by far my favorite piece for this time of year. If you're interested in the Brighton base layer or any other piece of apparel from Tracksmith, I mean, they have just an amazing line. Go to tracksmith.com slash Mario. And when you check out, if you use the code Mario new, that is for new customers who have never purchased anything with Tracksmith, you'll save 15 bucks off any purchase of $75 or more. And if you are a returning customer for Tracksmith, you can use the code Mario give that's Mario G I V E and you'll get free shipping on your order, but also free. 5% of your purchase will go to support the Friendly House in Worcester, Massachusetts. This is an inner city center that has a bunch of programs for youth and just the community in general. I spent most of my childhood there. I mean, it really helped shape a lot of who I am and how I think about the world and move through it. And it's just a real like point of pride for me that 5% of purchases using that code go to support this organization that is near and dear to me. Love it. And with that, let's get into this round of Ask Mario Anything questions. Over to you. Yeah, so we were doing something a little bit different this time around. Instead of trying to organize things thematically, we're just going to go alphabetical based on great. first name. <laughs> so it's going to be all over the place, but it's, it's going to be great. So the first question comes from Anna. Mario, what is your philosophy on distance versus time-based training, i.e. 20 miles versus three hours? And in what scenarios would you use one or the other? I I love this question. And the unsatisfying answer is it depends. depends. <laughs> but um, I do coach individual athletes. I have a group that I work with as well. But it depends on who they are and what they're training for. So generally, when I am training my athletes for a marathon, we will do most of the week in miles. I think that's easy enough for us to wrap our heads around. And there's just very little variety in terms of the terrain that they're running on. I mean, you run on a hilly road course versus a flat road course. I mean, for call it an eight mile run, you're talking a few minutes of difference. It's really not that huge of a deal. Um, you know, many people are trying to aim for a particular time for that distance. So pace per mile is important. So we'll do most things by, by distance. Um, we'll come back to that though and put a little star because, I am coaching a group for CIM this fall, and it's a wide range of 
ability levels, experience levels, and I'll explain here in a second just how I've like structured that group for the marathon. Mm-hmm. For my trail runners um, and ultra runners who are spending most of their time off the roads, the courses have much more variety to them. Oftentimes, just tricky terrain underfoot that is hard to really get into a rhythm on, very steep climbs, very steep descents. Um, you know, eight miles may take someone you know, an hour on a quote unquote fast trail, and it might take them close to two hours on a slower trail. So not all miles are created equal or at least not uh, equal enough on, on the trail. So with my trail and ultra runners, I almost exclusively do time-based training for that reason. But to go back to the marathon example, I mean, most of my one-on-one athletes, cause I got to know them really, really well. I know generally if they're out for eight, 10, 20 miles, how long it's going to take. I just, I just use miles. Um, it's going to be within a few minutes almost every time unless something like really, really goes wrong. And most of those athletes, that is what they're familiar with and they're comfortable with. And I don't really want to mess with that too much. But with this group that I've been training for CIM this fall, as I was saying, have a wide range of ability and experience levels. So I've actually written out most of the week by time. Uh, because it's more universal. And then the long run distances, and we have three levels to the program, and the biggest differences are the number of days that people are running per week, and then you know overall volume and the amount of time we spend at different intensities. The long run is all by miles, because the race is 26.2 miles, and I think people have to be able to wrap their head around, you know, what it feels like to be 18 miles into a long run, 20 miles into a long run, so on and and so forth. So we've done this kind of hybrid schedule where six days a week, everything is by time. And I should also add that we are meeting in person um, as a group a couple mm-hmm. times a week. So when we're doing workouts, it's a lot easier for me to keep people together by time because, you know, four-minute intervals, a four-minute interval, 10-minute intervals, a 10-minute interval, um, people can run at their own pace within that. Right. So it's made it easier to manage such a wide range of ability and experience levels. But the long runs we've been doing by distance, I've mapped out a route, and I can tell you this is 16 miles, mm-hmm. this is 18 mm-hmm. miles, this is 20 miles. And, you know, who's doing what depends on who they are and their experience level and what they're trying to achieve. But that high hybrid model has worked really well, you know, for, for the group. Um, and it's also helped prevent people from overdoing it during the week because, you know, the longer you do run, the more likely something could go wrong. And I mean, for the long run, that's, you know, unavoidable. You're going to race 26 miles, you got to run 16, 18, 20 miles in training. But during the week, you know, we'll do like an hour, hour and a half. And for some people, you know, that might be eight to 10 miles for other people that might be, you know, five to seven miles, but everyone's running for an hour. Um, and generally that's helped keep people just healthy and sane. Yeah. I guess another way to think about it too, is like if, it, if you're doing it based by time and you have different, like disparate sort of experience and pace levels, just do like an out and back and everyone do 30 minute out and back and mm-hmm. 30 minutes takes you farther down the road, you know, you're still all meeting back at the same point kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, from a fueling standpoint with the marathon, um, I also have my athletes do that by time. And it's really every 20 or, you know, 30 minutes, some people go, you know, every three miles, every four miles, whatever it happens to be. But again, time is much more universal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the human body doesn't really understand distance. It just understands the amount of, you know, exertion that you're placing upon it and like the amount of you know the amount of time so we try to just be i think as as predictable and consistent with that as possible sure great great question great answer mario okay the next question comes from cassie 
Spring marathons in the Midwest can obviously be a crapshoot when it comes to the weather. The same weekend could be a blizzard or humid heat wave depending on the year. I know science has proven that the ideal temp to compete is about 42 degrees. I don't know. Close I don't know enough. if that's true. Yeah, all right. Um, what I'm wondering is when it comes to more extremes, which is technically, quote unquote, better for your body, colder temps in the 20s or warmer temps in the 60s, does it depend on what you're primarily tr- been training in or does the body just naturally respond to, quote unquote, better to one situation over the other? Hmm. That's an interesting question, tricky one. I'm not sure that I, I totally understand what they mean by by better for the body. I mean again, I think it's going to depend on the athlete. I know for myself, I tolerate cold much better than I tolerate heat. So for me, um, you know, take precipitation out of it. I I will take a colder day over a warmer one, like, you know, 10 out of 10 times because Mm -hmm. my body responds more favorably to that. And I feel like I can train better. Um, You know, that said, it's a lot more effective to train in warmer temps and then race colder than it is to go the opposite, you know, from an acclimation standpoint too. So, you know, in terms of, of benefits, it's probably more beneficial to train in temperatures that are, are slightly warmer. Your body will adapt to that stress. You've got to learn how to modulate your effort levels. But then if race day itself, you know, is, is cooler in that ideal range, 42 to, you know, call it 50 degrees or so, um, it's going to feel pretty amazing for, you know, for most people um, versus, you know, if it is like 60, 65, where there is research that has shown, I think it's like every degree, you know, above 60, you know, there's an X percent effect on, you know, your overall performance. And again, that's going to vary depending on, on the individual, but you know, if you're racing a a marathon, you'd much rather do it in 40 to 50 degree temps than 60 to, you know, to 70 degree temps. So I think from a training standpoint, even though I can train more effectively in, you know, colder weather, I'd probably suck it up and train in slightly warmer conditions, um, hoping or knowing that race day is going to be a little bit cooler because I do think like that will help you know, performance versus the opposite where it's like training through the cold stuff and then getting a, a warm day on race day, which, I'm, you know, at the end of the day, you don't have control over it, <laughs> over any of it. Um, so you can only do what you can do. Yeah. So that's kind of a follow up to this one. It's like on some level, it's like, you know, some of these feels like it's stories that we tell ourselves, oh, I'm terrible in the heat. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, when you say that, I know that's based on years of experience in racing. So when you say I'm better in the cold, I mean, that's, that's tied to a lot of experience. Yeah. Um, what what would you recommend? It's like it sounds like Casey. It's like, you know, she 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 wants to make sure she's performing optimally, and but but how much of it do you think it's about developing sort of the resiliency to for the ambiguity of it all? Yeah, I, I think that's a lot of it too. I mean, as much as I I know that I would rather you know race in the cold or I perform better in the cold than I I do in the heat. I also have a story that I tell myself about that. So in my own experience and what I work with my athletes on is like telling ourselves, okay, like this is going to be more challenging, but we can prepare for it and we can equip ourselves with the tools that we need to perform, you know, in that type of 
situation. I mean, I have an athlete right now who's training for the Olympic trials and the marathon is going to be in Florida in February. It is most definitely going to be a lot warmer than it is here in the, the Bay area. I mean, I can't do anything about what the weather's doing, you know, outside, but we can prepare for warmer conditions by putting a heat training protocol in place. And, and while he's here, that's going to be, you know, layering up and just having to deal with some of that, you know, discomfort that's going to be putting a warm bath and sauna protocol in place um, in the final like four to six weeks before the race. And we're even thinking about because he has the flexibility of, of maybe even going to Florida for the month before the race mm-hmm. to like train in those conditions so that he can acclimate. But, you know, we can control all of those things, but he also has to like tell himself that, you know, even though it's probably not going to be ideal conditions for racing a marathon, that is what we're going to get. Um, and we're preparing ourselves as best as possible and he can still race well, despite it being warmer than is optimal right. for performance. Right. I don't awesome. know if that answers the question. No, I think so. I think so. All right. Our next question comes from Craig. Craig says, another marathon, another failed attempt at a new PR. Sorry, buddy. What do you advise your athletes to do when they seem stuck in a rut? Oh, I like I like this question because I've, I've dealt with these situations multiple times. I think... Again, it depends. Um, If you have a coach or you don't have a coach, I think it can be helpful to have a sounding board, someone that can look at what you've done at these last, you know, few marathons and identify some holes that potentially need to be filled. I mean, one issue that I see with a lot of marathoners is they just run marathons and they will just beat their head against the wall trying to do this one thing maybe step away from the marathon for a little bit um, work on developing your fitness and skills at you know shorter distances and then come back to the marathon maybe six or 12 months from now with a whole new set of tools and potentially that can help lead to you know this this breakthrough um, you know if you've been doing the same thing, you know, cycle in, cycle out, which is, is not uncommon. And it's leading to the same result. Uh, newsflash, that's not going to change unless you change something. So, you know, I think it can be hard to be objective when it's just you. And this is where a coach can really be, be helpful and provide that insight or just someone, um, that can advise you on, you know, blind spots that you might have. Um, there are other factors to look at as well. I don't know much about this particular situation. Maybe it's a, a fueling thing. Maybe you're running out of gas at the same point of, of every marathon, even though you've been on, you know, PR pace. So maybe that's something to, you know, to right. look at and potentially, you know, refine is your, your fueling strategy, because as we've seen, like that's become, it's always been important, but it's become more and more, you know, important as it relates to, you know, overall performance. You know, one thing I thought of as well is like, especially in the marathon, like it also depends kind of where he's on his journey because there is a lot of diminishing returns. Like, you know, maybe, maybe his PR is 230 and he's trying to go 229. I mean, if your shoelace gets untied, forget about it. It's gone. Right. So I guess it depends like, yeah, going from like, I don't know, four and a half hour marathon to a four hour marathon is much easier than it is going from like a 230 to a 228. Yeah, 100%. I mean, and please, those of you listening to this, don't take this the wrong way, but the slower you're running, the easier it is to take off big chunks of time. Mm -hmm. I mean, the faster you get or the closer you're getting to your potential, the harder it is to shave off 
you know, those, those last few minutes, much less like five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, like right. you may have been seeing, you know, before, but again, we don't have that context for, um, for this situation. The last thing I'll, I'll say, and one thing I'll do when an athlete comes to me with this particular issue is I, I take a look at pattern recognition. So, you know, I'll look at their last several marathons and try to see if I can find some patterns that we might need to, you know, break out of either from like a training standpoint, maybe it's a race execution standpoint. Um, and sometimes it can just be, you know, beyond that, just like being realistic about, you know, what's, what's possible for you. I mean, if your training has shown that, you know, you're ready to run a three thirty marathon and you go out at, you know, 315 pace because you think that's that's where you are i mean it's it's probably not going to end well so I also think <laughs> yeah. it's just being you know it's also it starts with being realistic i mean yeah, i think sure. that can be a you know that can be a part of it as well but i do look for patterns and you know if i see that the same pattern has led to the same result i'm like all right well we got to get out of that pattern and that could be any number of different things yeah for sure for sure all right um time for what i'm gonna assume is the first hot take uh with a question coming from laura so Laura asks, what are your thoughts on the Olympic marathon trials and all the quote-unquote drama surrounding it, specifically the noon start time? I read recently that the LOC was told the start time was non-negotiable, so they developed a financial model around that start time. They seem like the bad guys after the athletes had a meeting with USATF, and they were told that the LOC didn't want to budge on the start time. Seems like a complete lack of communication. Why would anyone want to host going forward now? I think Laura summed that up really, really well. I don't know why anyone else would want to host going forward. I mean, I said this after Atlanta in 2020. I mean, the organization that hosts the Olympic trials usually ends up losing a lot of money, like million plus dollars in many cases. It's not a great return on investment. Also, USA Track and Field is notoriously difficult to work with. Um, they put a lot of the pressure on the local organizing committee to deliver an amazing product that eventually they get to take credit for, they get to market, they profit from. Um, so there's definitely, I mean, you just read any of the articles on this, a, a lack of communication that, you know, that has happened. Um, that doesn't surprise me because that seems to almost always be the case uh, when it comes to, you know, when it comes to these things. I mean, I think many decisions were made not with the athlete's best interests in mind, but with the best interests in mind of, you know, USA track and field, TV revenue, sponsor revenue, et cetera. As of this conversation, the start time has been moved back to 10 a.m. from noon. So that's slightly better, you know, for the athletes. Maybe that's a kind of meet in the middle type of compromise because ideally, you know, for the athletes, the earlier you start, the better, 7 a.m., you know, 8 a.m., um, right. you know, that sets them up for success. But, you know, I'll back away from all that and I'll, I'll say this as well. Um, if you're an athlete competing at that level and you know that you're going to be racing the Olympic trials, yeah, sure. You want it to, you know, you, you want it to be as, as fair as possible, but life's not always fair. And if you tell the athletes months out and they have plenty of notice, it's going to be a noon start time and it's in Florida, you should know what that's going to mean and you prepare for it accordingly because same start time for everybody. Yep, It's the same for everybody. And that's what it's going to be. And if you've already, you know, back to the stories you tell yourself, if you've told yourself, well, I'm just not going to perform well in that. Guess what? You're probably not going to perform well in that. But if you tell yourself like, all right, that's what it is. This is what I need to do to prepare as well as possible. Um, you know, chances are, are better than not that you're probably going to have a solid day. Is it going to be a PR day? No. Um, you know, is, is it going to be the most exciting marathon you've ever run? Yeah, probably not. And like those, 
those, you know, those conditions, but you can still compete, you know, really, really well. So, I mean, I've always found like the athletes who do best in, in those situations and the ones that are going to do best on, on the biggest stage that qualify, you know, for the Olympics are the ones who just accept the situation as it is, even if they don't like it and they just get to work and they just, they just do it. Um, you know, so, I mean, I think that, that says a lot right there as well. I mean, I, again, I, I stand by everything I said about like USA track and field and some of the decisions that they've made, but you know, it comes down to it at the end of the day, you know, the athletes who are there to compete, they're going to, they're going to take the situation that they're handed and they're going to try to make the best of it. Yeah. Amen to that. Um, the next question comes from Lauren. She asks, as a 50-year-old runner who started running at 39, I'm experiencing PRs now that I run different paces throughout the week. How much longer will I reap the benefits of specificity? For example, are my hopes of a Boston qualifier realistic, or am I going to have to wait until I'm older H-bracket while not slowing my pace so much? Thank you. Good question. Without having any more context than what Lauren provided, I don't know where she's at right now in terms of the marathon and what the qualifying time is, you know, for her age group. So that's a, that part of it is, is tough for me to answer, but, um, probably for a little while longer, you can expect to see some continued improvement. And as far as the BQ goes, I mean, the older you get, the more minutes you get as well. So, I mean, if you're still on this upward trajectory and you really haven't plateaued yet, or, you know, you've been at this sport long enough and all of a sudden you're falling down, you know, the other side, you're probably not going to fall off, you know, as much as you get older. So it will become theoretically easier, you know, to qualify for, for Boston. But, you know, the thing that jumped out to me about that question is she says, I've been seeing a lot of improvement um, since I started running different paces throughout the week. That's great. I mean, I think, you know, if you are really trying to improve your performance, you can't run at the same pace or same intensity all the time. Like, you know, you should have days where you're running really hard. Most of your workout should be moderately hard and you should have many days that are just like very, very easy running and, you know, various intensities that you hit, you know, in between there and doing that over a long period, consistently over a long period of time is eventually what leads to, you know, performance breakthrough. So someone who started running at 39 is now in her fifties. I mean, she's been at it for quite a while. I don't know how long she's been, you know, training in this way and seeing the improvement, but my, my hunch is for someone who started that much later in life, there's probably still room for a little bit more improvement. And I don't think that fall off is going to be as drastic right away when she does start to eventually plateau. She's got young legs. Yeah, exactly. So I have a couple comments. One is great job, not leading the answer with it depends but still having it depend on a lot of stuff. So great job there. Um, anyone following at home, so the call, the Boston, the BQ time for someone in the age group between 50 and 54 for women is three hours and 55 minutes. Mm-hmm. For fellas is three hours and 25, and for non-binaries, also three hours and 55 minutes. So I thought that's just a little information for people. Mm-hmm. I don't know what her personal best is. I don't think she shared it with us, but you know, I, I assume she's, she's close, um, and probably within, you know, within earshot. And I think you should do everything that you can try to do to hit that qualifying mark within that age range that you're, you're currently in because you, you may do it and that's awesome. And if not, you're going to get really, really close. And as we had talked about, I don't think that 
drop off is going to be you know mm-hmm. super drastic within like another year or two but if you get five or ten more minutes in that next age group i think it's five minutes i think is how yeah. how boston works um you know oftentimes that can be the difference maker for people for sure for sure yeah and i think one one other thing probably worth belaboring a little bit is the idea of running at different paces i mean Whenever I think of that, for me, the analogy is always my swimming. Mm-hmm. The only way you become a faster swimmer is swimming faster than you normally swim for, for you know, in intervals and variety of ways. That's really the only way to get faster is you need to swim faster than your fast pace. Mm-hmm. Um, and in running, it's the same. It's like, yeah, you're, you're not going to be running all the time in zone five or 5K pace or whatever, but touching that. Getting yeah. there is really the only way you can develop the ability to run faster. Yeah, and a, li- a little will go a long way. And, you know, I think, especially with newer runners, they um, don't think they have much range as far as, like, their their speed goes. Like, I got fast and slow. And oftentimes that's true, you know, with, mm-hmm. with newer runners. Like, it is it is like, okay, this is easy and, and this is hard. But with experience, with introducing those new stimuli, you develop more gears. You develop a much wider range of paces that, you know, you can, you can run at. And in the course of a given training week, like, most of that's going to be, like, fairly easy. Some of it's going to be like moderately hard. Every once in a while, you'll go like very, very hard. And then obviously there's there's rest days in there as well. But I think, you know, if you're a newer runner listening to this, you may only have like a, you may only have like easy and hard, um, but stay with it, you know, work on running at those different paces, understanding how your body responds to those different types of intensity. Um, you know, that's really over the long term what's going to help lead to breaking through those barriers, but also just continued improvement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, former podcast guest and friend of the show, Steve Magnus, I think the way he says it, it's like run sometimes fast Mm -hmm. every once in a while, go see God, (laughs) which is a a great way to, to put a little button on that one. Our next question comes from Hamish. He asks, you obviously possess a vast array of running knowledge in general, particularly regarding training methods, mental aspects, recovery, etc. My question is, who or what this year has challenged your preconceived ideas, forcing you to think beyond what you had previously, and how beneficial has it been to have your view challenged in a different way? Mm. Great question. I don't know if I've been challenged directly by anyone in particular, but my athletes challenge me to challenge my own assumptions all the time. And I don't even know if they know that they're doing it, but I will write out their training for a marathon, for example, and I'll see how that goes and how they respond to it. And one thing that I believed over the past several years that I have definitely changed my mind on this year and have seen the results to back it up is the insertion of a lot of marathon paced running into long runs for for marathoners i used to do it a lot more frequently because i thought i mean we know the long run is you know the most important single training element when it comes to training for a marathon i think overall consistency and volume is is there as well but if if you were to isolate one workout it's like okay the long run's important and i would do a lot of these long runs with huge chunks of marathon paced running built into them and i still will do that but i do that less frequently i used to do it like every other week um or two out of every three weeks and now i do it like once every third week right so it's like it's still an important element but i think i overemphasize that in the past and because of that I was compromising the athlete's ability to recover from those sessions. And sometimes they were leaving, you know, their, their race and some of those key workouts and they made a bigger deal out of them than they really needed to be. So 
I mean, that's something that I have definitely changed my mind on this year and, you know, specific to the marathon, um, have definitely like made an adjustment in my programming. I don't know if that answers the question or if it's, if it's deeper than, uh, no, I, I think, I think that. that's great. I think that's great. And and it's almost like it's, it's interesting. I mean, the, what, what I got out of that is like, you had to dial back that specific type of program mm-hmm. or that workout because, you know, folks are six weeks out of a marathon. I mean, I've gotten these workouts from you. It'll be like a two hour long run, 30 minutes easy, 15 minutes on, 15 minutes off and do that for two hours. And yeah, the 15 minutes on, you're like, all right, I'm going to show up for coach. I'm going to, I'm going to do the effort that's required. And it's too much of that. You're almost like, you know, because your desire to to nail the workout, it's, it could actually be a disadvantage. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's just, it's just reminding myself of not only the physical toll of those workouts, but like the mental toll that oftentimes the athletes will put on themselves going into it. You need to recover from that. So if we're doing that two Mm -hmm. weekends in a row, usually by the second time they do it, they haven't really had a chance to absorb the one from the week before. And then what ends up happening is we dig the hole a little bit too deep and then it becomes harder, you know, to get out of. So just by spreading that out a little bit more, I mean, it's helped build in just a little more of that physical and mental and emotional recovery. It's allowed them to absorb those big sessions a little bit better. And, you know, overall it's led to breakthroughs in the marathon going into the races, just feeling fresher and more ready rather than like the least bit crispy and that's just been an eye-opener for me crispy that sounds like a term of art for coaching um i guess one last question here kind of going back to hamish's point um you know you speak to a lot of coaches you're you know you travel in these circles are there any training methods that you're learning about that you either really agree with or ones that you think you know i don't know I always think of like the double threshold workouts yeah, yeah. as a key example of that. Is there anything that you're seeing that you're either super excited about? That's the first no. one that came to mind for me because in my circles, it's been all the rage for a year, if not two years now. You've got you know the Norwegians, the Ingerbritsons, um, who really popularized that. And it's sprinkled down to the collegiate level where you've got coaches like Mike Smith and Northern Arizona University utilizing double threshold training. Um, some other professionals as well, seeing the success of the Ingerbritsons and others feeling like this is the way. And it's like, it can be an effective <laughs> yeah, training modality. And I think if you've, you know, maxed out the amount of threshold work that you can do or you need a change in stimulus, I think it can be really, really effective. I think there is not that anyone's marketing this officially, but there's there's a marketing message that gets misconstrued amongst the masses and it's like this is the way. Uh and as you said, it's a way to do it. It is not the way. And for most certainly young athletes, amateur athletes, it is way more than you can probably handle out the gate. And I mean the problem we have i think societally is people just want to go and and do the thing it's like you really need to be careful about how you implement that specific training element into your program because it's a huge stress i mean mike smith said it in some article when he first introduced it for northern arizona university the team was just they were crushed uh by it and he didn't use it again that season now they use it more frequently but you know he's learned how to use it more effectively and certainly here in america i mean people just go too hard all the time so they see double threshold is like oh now i can go like twice as hard and it's like no the whole point is intensity control right Right. so if you're going to do that and do it effectively like you really have to um, learn how to control 
you know, your, your intensity and take double threshold out of it. I mean, from what I've seen, just working with age group and, and amateur runners, more of them need to learn just how to control their intensity in general across the board. You know, that easy really is easy that when they're running right. threshold or tempo that they're, they're in the proper zone, that they're not, not pushing too hard because right. they feel good or they think they're going to get a little bit more, you know, out of the workout. I mean, I, I see this, you know, I see this all the time. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes double threshold specifically can serve as a forcing function in that way. Cause if you do do it too hard, like it is just going to like beat you down. So you're for, forced to learn pretty quickly. Quickly, but it's just you know it's one tool I think to have in right. you know your box and it can be effective. But I don't think for you know many people it's necessary until you've maxed everything else out. Right? Yeah. Like if you don't have a good sense of what your gears are or you haven't developed gears, mm-hmm. double threshold seems to be like you have to know what eighty percent feels like and all that stuff. Yeah, and realizing like threshold itself is a spectrum, right? I mean, uh, a lot gets lumped under threshold, and then there's LT one and LT two, and you know how you measure that specifically and pros are being very precise with it and they're actually like pricking their ear or their finger and they're getting lactate measurements. I mean, the average person isn't going to do that and they're not in a situation like where they can do that. So you've got to learn to look for other signs, whether it's like, you know, how you're, how you're breathing, maybe it's pacing, maybe it's, you know, heart rate and trying to figure out exactly, you know, where you are. Sorry, that was a little tangent, but it was good. It was good. Um, anytime we can do a double threshold tangent, I'm, I'm here for it. Our next question comes from Holly. She asked Mario, I appreciate the information you share and the honesty in which you share your thoughts. Your podcast and newsletters are always educational and applicable to runners of all levels. I'd like to ask about your opinion on the distance of a quote unquote long run related to her previous question. Mm-hmm. I love 18 to 20 milers. I feel great after a long run of this distance. I generally run at an 810, 840 pace for my long run, which keeps my heart rate around zone two, sometimes peaking to zone three towards the end. I'm also a master's runner, 47, almost 48. Almost happy birthday, Holly. Uh, do you think it's okay to run 18 to 20 milers every weekend? Usual A usual week for me is Monday easy, five to six miles, Tuesday workout, threshold tempo, long hills, Wednesday mm-hmm. easy, Thursday easy with six by 30 strides, Friday rest, Saturday long, Sunday easy. Thank you. Holly seems to be running a lot. <laughs> Holly does seem to be running a lot. She is a runner. Well, thank you, Holly. I'm glad that you're enjoying um, the morning shakeout and everything that I'm putting out into the world. I mean, long is relative. 18 to 20 miles to me, that's that's a long run no matter how you slice it. Um, do I think it's necessary every weekend? No, I do not. I think it depends on where you are in training and what it is that you're, you're focusing on. And, you know, I do know people and have athletes who like to do that every weekend. But I think the question we have to ask ourselves and I'll often ask them is like, you know, why do you feel like you need to do this every weekend? Is it because it's helping you get closer to your race goal or, you know, is it, is it feeding something else? Right. And I think you have to be honest with yourself about that. I mean, I think long is, is relative. I think long depends on, you know, where you are during the year. I mean, long can be 12, long can be 14, long can be 10 for some people, long can be 18 to to 20. Um, I don't think you need to do, and again, this depends on the person, what they're training for. I don't think you need to do a long run every week. You know, I think that's just like some, like a, a wall I'd like to break down just in, in, in running. It's like, you don't need to do a long run every week. I think long runs are definitely beneficial, certainly for, you know, longer events, certainly for building your, you know, aerobic base. But, you know, for some people they're too much every week, even if, even if they're not, you know, that hard. Um, and sometimes they're, they're not even, you know, necessary. Um, if you're training for say something, something shorter and you'd be more well-suited to spending your time, you know, bringing your threshold 
down, um, you know, working on your speed, you know, type of thing. So I don't think it's necessary every week, certainly not 18 to 20, you know, every week. Um, but again, like I, I'd also just like ask yourself, you know, why do you feel like you need to do 18 to 20 every week? For sure. For sure. All right. Our next question comes from Jeremy. He has a philosophical and tactical question. I love philosophical questions. Yeah. So there's two. He, he said that we could just pick whichever one intrigues us, but let's just go with both of them. So sure. his first question is, what have you changed your mind on in the past few years? That's, that's a you know pretty pretty vague. Do you want to just take that one, or you want me to give you the second one too? Um, I kind of answered that a little while ago in regard to long runs for the marathon. That's the the first and most immediate that kind of comes to mind. I mean, I change my mind all the time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I I like to think that I'm pretty open-minded and you know, and you know, in a lot of ways, especially as I gather, you know, more information, but I that said I can't think of anything else um specifically off the top of my head. So maybe we'll come come back to that if you want to sure, ask me sure. the second question. I would just say that seems like a strength as a coach that you're not just like, you know, no longer following evidence-based practices or something like that, you know, like the old doctor who uh Hasn't read a medical book in 40 years. Um, Second question from Jeremy is, I coach cross-country at a high school level, but I'm in the midst of building up a team from scratch. And I found it really difficult to recruit runners. They prefer playing other sports. Do you have any suggestions for how I should go about building the team? I try to meet the incoming students to the school, but I'm keen for any other strategies that you have. Yeah. um, This admittedly is not an area of expertise for me because I have not built many teams from scratch, but I can share some observations of teams and coaches that I respect and admire in this way. And I think a lot of it just comes down to creating a culture that people want to be a part of. And, Mm -hmm. and that takes time, um, to the point where, you know, after a few years, you've got people who want to join the team because of the culture that has been, you know, created there. So, you know, some of that is just getting the right people in place and to buy into your mission and, and your objectives and, and getting them all on board, you know, with that. And, and maybe early on, like that is a, you know, a pretty small team, but you know, if you're doing it well, eventually the word's going to get out and a few more people will join. Um, and again, I think it's just taking a long-term approach to this sort of thing and, and letting it happen, you know, over time rather than, you know, trying to, to make it happen just by pulling people into something that they, they don't want to do yet. And there has been no culture established. So, um, I would invest most of my time and energy in trying to, you know, build that culture first, even if it is only with like a, you know, a few kids, because if the culture's strong, it eventually will, will grow and resonate with people. Yeah. And I think, um, remind me, I, I don't know if I'm getting my Mario mythology, right. But one of the reasons you did cross country was to help you per, like be in shape for basketball. Correct. So, so, you know, maybe leaning into that, it's like, let's be honest, like cross country is not the sexiest of high school sports. You're not, yep. you're not going to be like voted prom king for being like captain of your cross country team. No offense, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but, but it is something, I mean, you build a huge base, you develop skills, you build up teamwork. And if you're playing winter or spring sports, depending on when your cross country season is, I guess, like it does help you be ready for that. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you know, if kids are going to play soccer in the fall over, over cross country, and they've been doing that their entire life. I mean, you're going to have a hard time, you know, swaying them away, but you know, the kids who aren't playing a fall sport, but they are going to play a winter sport. I mean, 
cross country can only help that even if they don't stick around for track maybe they're going to play baseball in the spring and mm-hmm. you know they're going to play some winter baseball but they they need something to like keep in shape after you know summer league and fall ball is is over like cross country would be great for that you know they're getting ready for basketball as you said you know that can be beneficial it's like maybe you know maybe it's talking to the coaches of those teams saying hey if you've got kids who you know, are, are looking for ways to get in shape this fall. Um, we've got the, got the cross country team. We're trying to build, you know, again, back to that, you know, that culture there. And I mean, mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I can't see a downside, you know, to, to that. So I think, yeah, could be reaching out to like those other coaches and seeing if they have kids that, you know, might want to join cross country in, in the fall, but you know, either way, it's a, it's not the easiest sell in the entire world, but I do think it's a, an easier, more effective sell if you've got a, a culture that um, people want to be a part of. Totally, totally. All right. And our next question comes from John. If you were playing the morning shakeout bingo to this in terms of terminology, you're about you're about to yell bingo. So he asks, can you explain some terminology? I've seen so many different endurance coaches use different phrases for similar workouts that I'm confused. What is the difference between lactate threshold, critical velocity, and tempo pace? Yeah. Um, I honestly, not to like, you know, disparage the, the sports scientists, but I think there are a lot who just want to put their stamp on something. They've got to call it, you know, something, you know, something, something cool, uh, and distinctive, which is fine. Like I, I totally, you know, understand that. Um, but it does create a lot of confusion out there because, you know, we were saying this earlier about threshold or tempo, like those two words can be, you know, synonymous. Um, but essentially what it comes down to is, you know, steady running for a prolonged period of time. You know, I, I mean, you could break that into intervals with, you know, short rest or you could go long, but, you know, generally that's like what threshold or tempo means. I mean, critical velocity, uh, Tom Schwartz defines it as your 35 minute, you know, race pace. So for, for some faster runners, um, you know, that might be their 10 K pace, like bang on, maybe it's a little bit slower than their 10 K pace. Maybe it's a little bit, you know, faster, um, and I'm not going to get into like the scientific weeds of it because then it talks about like, okay, these are, you know, markers that you would need to look at, whether it's like, you know, lactate or heart rate or, or whatever. Uh, and I don't have those, you know, offhand, but it's like, okay, all this stuff exists like along a spectrum, right? So it's like at one end of the spectrum, you've got like, you know, very easy just call it jogging. Like that's regenerative running. Um, you know, you're going like very slow step above that. Um, which is also still aerobic running. Some people may call it easy, but it's like, you know, not hard running. That's where you're going to spend like most of, you know, your, your miles. I mean, Mark Coogan calls it in his personal best. He just calls it a regular run. I mean, I don't think you need to make it any more complicated than that. (laughs) Um, it's a, it's a regular, it's a regular run. Um, and then you start coming into, you know, that like tempo threshold type of zone. But again, like even that is a, a spectrum. So like what I call steady tempo, like that's marathon ish effort. Maybe it's a little bit slower. Maybe it's like a little bit faster, but that's generally like the ballpark that you're aiming for it's like steady running for a prolonged period of time the other end of the threshold tempo uh spectrum is like i'll call it just hard tempo maybe that's half marathon type effort a little bit faster um some coaches call it your 60 minute race pace and again like for some you know world-class athletes that is their half marathon pace like you know for a, a fast uh age grouper maybe that's like your 10 mile pace like for someone else it might be closer to like their you know their 10k pace but i think it's just understanding that there is like a difference even within you know, that zone. Then you get into like, you know, critical velocity. Um, again, 35 minute pace, 10 K pace for some, maybe a little bit faster, you know, than, than others. Um, and then from there it's like, you know, five, like five K type of effort or like, 
usually people go to VO2 max, which is technically like, you know, the pace you can hold for call like an eight to 10 minute type of race. So for some people that's like their three K pace, their two mile pace, slightly faster than five K pace. It's like, um, again, there are other parameters you could put on that from like, you know, lactate, heart rate, power, you know, et cetera. And then, you know, beyond that, you know, you're starting to get into like mile pace and close to like, you know, then eventually like all out you know, sprinting, um, mm-hmm. you know, so there is just this like big, you know, range of, again, gears, paces, whatever you want to call it that, you know, you can operate at and develop over a period, you know, in time. And for some people there's big gaps between those. And for others, they're, you know, closer together. I mean, there's some people who's like LT1 and LT2, if you want to get technical about threshold, like they're not that far apart. Um, you know, then you have some people who there's like a huge gap between like their, you know, their VO two max and their, you know, their critical velocity. Um, so I think apologize from ranting here. It's like less about like the, the, the fancy names and just understanding, you know, generally what zone of intensity are you in? And when you're in that zone, what are you trying to get out of that particular, you know, type of workout? And then how does that relate to the performance that you are ultimately trying to achieve as well? Well, I love how nerdy this got. I had no idea I was going to get this nerdy for this one. So this is great. I hope I didn't over, I hope no, I didn't like great. overcomplicate or add confusion to it, the question. It was great. It was great. You took us on a journey and we're better for it. Um, yeah, it seems like another thing we talked about before, it's like, hey, if you can figure out your gears, that's probably the best indicator of like, okay, now you know what a, you know, what a hard tempo would look like. Yeah. Now you know what this should feel like. So regardless of what you call it, if you have a good understanding of yeah. how quickly you move your body yeah. at different times, you're good. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say on this is rate of perceived exertion, RPE, goes a long way. And we don't have to overcomplicate this. I mean, the Borg scale is like on a scale of 20. I mean, you can make this on a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of intensity, where that real easy jogging is like a 1 or 2. Most of your aerobic running is like 3 to 4. You know, the start of your threshold zone is like, you know, 5 to uh, right up to like seven then critical velocity is like seven VO two max is like eight, uh, VV two max is like maybe nine. Then right. all out sprint yes. is like, and 10. then like seeing God is 10 yeah. <laughs> it's type of 10. And like, you know, there, there's some trial and error involved in this too. I think a lot of runners say, especially newer ones, they just, they want that precise prescription. Tell me exactly like, you know, what my numbers need to be for like this period of time. And, and, and I'll do that. Well, it's going to take some trial and error to figure that out, but like your perceived effort and studies have shown this will give you oftentimes like some of the best information that you need. I mean, oftentimes I will give my athletes a VO two max workout, like a classic one is five to six by three minute reps with, you know, two to three minutes recovery in between. And they're like, well, how hard should that be? I'm like the hardest effort that you can sustain for like five to six, you know, three minute reps. And you've got to like learn what to do that. So if you go out too hard on the first one and you like keep falling off, like you learn something from that and you adjust for the next time. If you go out too slow and you know, you're, you're getting like a lot faster with each one. It's like, okay, well you, you started too slow. You probably need to like start where you were for like three or four. Um, and then you can sustain that for the thing. So, I mean, allow yourself to fail every once in a while too. So you can understand like what these, you know, zones, these effort levels, these intensities, um, what they, you know, what they mean for you as well. And then with experience, it gets, you know, it gets easier to, you know, kind of make sense of those things and know what it is that you're trying to do with a given workout. Yeah. You know, I think the last thing I'll throw in in this, people can go back into the catalog and listen to your conversation with Dr. Justin Ross, but almost like, okay, there's the workout and then there's the spirit of the workout. The way I've interpreted that is, is keeping to the spirit of it, 
helps you whatever pace you're able to pull off that day. As long as, hey, you're you're trying to the hardest tempo you could do, you pulled it off, you gave it, you gave it the gas. If it's slower than what you usually do for a variety of reasons, like that's okay too. Yeah. And and what I found helpful with my athletes is just kind of cluing them in, especially the new ones. I'm like, here's how you should expect to feel doing this type of workout. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's like, if if that feels harder than what we're looking for, you probably need to back it off. But if it feels like a little bit easier, then you can probably step on the gas a little bit. And again, like, you know, build in some of that trial and error. Because um, over time, you will like dial that in and just have a better understanding of, of, you know, where you should be for a given workout. Right, right. All right. Last question. Now we're rolling. Okay, last one already. Go for All it. All right. This comes from Mike. Mike asks, for years, I've emphasized quality over quantity in terms of mileage, but I wonder if it's worth considering increasing the overall volume of easy running. What do you think? Absolutely. 100%. I think every runner would benefit from doing that um, at some period in time and for some period of time. I mean, quality and quantity shouldn't be mutually exclusive. Shouldn't just be one or the other. I mean, there's got to be... you know, there's got to be a quality to, you know, your, your quantity, but you know, this is an aerobic endeavor distance running. Um, even if you're racing 5k all the way up to ultra marathon, like that's a, an aerobic spectrum. So, you know, easy running is going to, you know, help build, you know, that aerobic base, you know, safely and gradually, um, over time. I mean, most people, especially new runners are going to benefit just from running more. I mean, not, doing any specific workouts at all, just increasing their general aerobic capacity. You can do that through, you know, increasing amounts of, of easier running. And generally that is, uh, an effective and safe way of, of getting people like into the sport, you know, as well. And then you can start, you know, manipulating that a little bit and building in like some, you know, some other quality, but I, I think that's going to go a long way, you know, for, you know, for many people. I mean, if you look at the, the best in the sport. They all run a, a lot of miles in, gener- in, in general. I mean, again, all relative, but they're they're running consistently, and most of that is easy running. Um, you know, and that and that's not low quality. Like that's quality running. Just because it's slow or it's conversational doesn't mean it's it's low quality. Right. Like that's still a, a quality run. But that's really what it is that we're you know that we're trying to develop and where you should be spending you know most of your time, even when you have some like harder workouts in the mix. But you know typical base building phase, uh, many people will do this for periods of the year. They're just, they're just running. Um, and if you're trying to get, you know, your volume up, generally the intensity has to be down. It's hard to increase both of those things at the, you know, at the same time. And then if you're going to increase the intensity, there's probably going to be like an overall drop in volume, but there's still going to be a lot of easy running in your, you know, in your program. But a lot of people would benefit just from like, you know, building that big base of aerobic mileage, not worrying too much about, you know, the intensity. Um, you know, you, you hear, at least I've, I've heard this, like, you know, you hear athletes, uh, they'll race at the end of like a base building season. Like I haven't even started speed work yet. Um, they've just been running, you know, large amounts of, of aerobic volume. And again, that exists like kind of on, you know, a spectrum, but they've gotten very strong from that. And oftentimes, you know, can race pretty fast off of just doing that. And then, you know, you build in some specificity and start dialing things in, but yeah, Yeah. a, a lot of aerobic running, a lot of easy aerobic running will go a long way. Yeah. And that's where, um, you know, uh, purple patch, 
coach Matt Dixon, he calls those like the soul filling runs Mm -hmm. where it's like, it's easy. It's conversational. You get to express your fitness. You get to enjoy the fact that you're in shape and you can go run for an hour, no problem and have it be conversational and stuff. And, uh, and those have a, like a sort of a psychic value in terms of making you feel strong and healthy and whatnot. Yeah. There's also the other side of it too. It can be like boring, monotonous work. And the truth is that's just part of it. You know, yeah. <laughs> I think we live in a society now where people want stimulation, they want excitement all the all the time, but you know, this is a long game that we're playing and it is a very patient process and sometimes it really is just putting the miles in and that's going to be, you know, it can be like zen like and, you know, peaceful and you can go to that place 100% but it's not going to be like that, you know, all sure. the time. Sometimes it's just like, oh my god, just I'm putting in another like 60 minute run, another 90 minute run. Uh, and I need to like control, you know, the intensity, but again, like realizing there's not going to be immediate payoff to that, but like long-term you're going to really strengthen that foundation. That's just going to allow you to Mm -hmm. do more, to handle more, um, work down the road. So, um, yeah. yeah, you know, and I and I'm I'm telling you, those are boring. But you know what's a what's a great thing to do when you're when you're doing those long runs, just chill runs. Listen to your favorite running podcast, The Morning yeah. Shakeout. I mean, for years, Mario, great for fuck. years, my 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 long chill run was always like, up. Oh, let me listen to this week's episode, and it's just a great way to do. I mean, it's it's still very familiar to me. I try to do it as often as I can. Is you know, on my on my chill long run, this is just what I do. I listen to The Morning Shakeout. Yeah, and you're probably not going to listen to it in the middle of an interval workout because. Nope. <laughs> you really got to focus on just putting one foot in front of the other and hitting your targets and you know all of that stuff. So I didn't even pay you to give me that great <laughs> plug, but I think that's a great place to wrap up this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast, the latest AMA. Um, thanks for serving up those those questions for me. Thank you to everyone who submitted a question. They were great. I don't look at them ahead of time, so I like just being in the hot seat and seeing what comes my way. Uh, and Chris, I always appreciate you serving them up so well. No worries. All right, that's it for this one. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. If you could, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning into this from. It means a lot to me, and it helps new listeners to discover the show. Also, a big thank you to my annual partners, Tracksmith, New Balance, Precision Fuel and Hydration, and Gooder for making it possible. Check out themorningshakeout.com slash partners to take advantage of some of the discount codes and special offers that are available exclusively to readers and listeners of The Morning Shakeout. Before we go, I'd like to give a couple more quick shout-outs. The first to John Summerford, who has edited and produced every episode of the podcast since we launched it in late 2017. He's the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. The second goes to Chris Douglas, who is my right-hand man and helps manage partner relationships. And last but not least, Nicole Bush, who gives me a hand with social media content strategy and creation and is my co-host for Training Talk Thursday, which you can tune into on Thursday evenings at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Morning Shakeout's Instagram account, which you can find at the AM Shakeout. And that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast.